At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash grad school. I'm Joe Devine and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. Today, I'm joined by Alex Stewart to talk about Frank de Boer and Crystal Palace and the tactical transition the team is currently undergoing successfully or more potently less successfully. Also, a quick note to say that if you can please uh, rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, uh, leave a review. That's all really useful. Or SoundCloud as well on YouTube. If you can, if you can comment on that, it really helps us. And it pushes us up a little bit higher in search search functions, so uh, other people can find the podcast as well. We really appreciate that. So if you're enjoying listening and downloading, if you can take a couple of minutes to do that, that'd be fantastic. Uh, thanks very much for downloading the podcast. I uh, hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you again next week. It's three games and three losses for Crystal Palace in the Premier League so far this season. The team did manage a win against Ipswich Town in the EFL Cup, but are only just above West Ham in the league table, heading into international break. That's also on goal difference. That's not on points. Uh, both teams have lost all their games so far. Alex, much of the analysis so far has been regarding the team's switch to De Boer's Ajax-inspired ball retention-based system. Um, are these early issues just teething problems, or is is it emblematic of, of a bigger problem for Palace, you think? I think the honest answer to that is that it's probably too soon to tell. Um, but the the transition between one style and another, in this instance, the kind of Sam Allardyce-inspired you know, longer balls, quick breaks down the flanks to what De Boer is trying to do is a very significant change. Um, and it's it's not just the formational change that's occurred. It's a, a complete kind of stylistic vault fast. And it does seem like the Palace players are struggling to adapt to that. I mean, I don't think that's their only issue. I think that there are not players in that formation that are naturally suited to playing in a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-2-1. Yeah. Um it's it's very very difficult to see particularly if you look at the sort of back three and and wide players or back five if you want to call them that. Really only maybe Fosu Mensa has had some experience of playing in a 3. Although bearing in mind for a lot of the time that he was at Manchester United as a youth player, he he was also playing as a kind of defensive midfielder. Van Arnholt has played in a five at the back or as a wing back in a in a three, but again, not regularly and not recently. So straight away, you're asking a group of players who have been well drilled in a in a pretty rigorous kind of four four two style um, defensively not fullbacks that were encouraged to get forward a lot all of a sudden you're asking them to play in a very very different style um and it's, it's interesting that you that you mention um timothy fossu mensa as well having some experience of playing in a back three uh, it happened uh, rarely obviously he was still very young but he did come through under van hal united and he did play occasionally in, in that back three there um and 
we during the video that we made about about Crystal Palace and, and Frank de Boer, we mentioned the links to Van Hal as well and the dangers of creating with that system a sort of stolid passing sideways thing that that we saw with Van Hal. So it's interesting as well that there's a player who who might be playing under under both. You wonder how his experience of that formation actually worked out for him. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't doubt that 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 was a deliberate recruitment effort by de Boer to bring in a defender who a was versatile and and can play uh in in a sort of defensive central midfield role if required um but also somebody who who is not only used to that formation but but reasonably used to that style of play um but then again as you correctly said you know he's he's not exactly a an old head he's not had a huge amount of premier league experience so while you're bringing in somebody who who should be quicker to adapt that's not a player that's going to inspire the others around him to do the same he's not a player who's necessarily going to feel comfortable looking to his left and screaming instructions at Scott Dan and and James Tompkins who've you know who've both played a lot of Premier League football and I think it's important to bear in mind as well that um in Wayne Hennessy Crystal Palace have got a goalkeeper who didn't impress at all last season and you know Palace had issues with goalkeeping they started with Steve Mandanda I think there were probably language problems there and um went back to Hennessy who'd actually been impressive the season previously but Again, the the organisation that's required by a goalkeeper of a back three uh, and the two dropping back, you know, they need to be very dominant. They need to be absolutely commanding their box, commanding their players, and and there's potentially some sort of of issue there where a, a goalkeeper's coming off a pretty shaky season, being asked to impose themselves, instruct their defence in a system that they're probably not comfortable with either. Um, and it's just creating a lot of issues. I, th- I think the midfield is unbalanced as well. Um, I just, I just think that it's, you know, we've talked before. It's, a, it's a thread that's cropped up in in a number of our videos, and the difference maybe between domestic football and international football about building a, a system around a player. And I think here Palace have done the opposite. They they've built a system irrespective of their players. And are now desperately trying to cram them in to a way that a manager wants to play. Well, that, that's on my uh, questions list actually about about adaptation. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on. I want to ask you more about some of the specific players as we talk about suitability. There, um, there are obviously Palace have a number of key players. I mean, Wilfred Zaha, who I, to his credit has looked good this season, looked very good towards the end of last season, um, and of course as well, Christian Benteke. Jason Punchin, who you know had been playing in that central midfield berth, which is perhaps slightly unusual for a player of, of you know who's who's used to being much more of an attacking force. I wonder how well suited these players individually are to the system. So uh, let's start with, with Wilfred Zaha. I mean, it's you know I'm not sure if, if I'm right, but it seems to me that he's you know talented enough to be able to play really in any position of the of the of the front three. Is that fair enough to say? You don't think he's been caused too many problems by the by the change? No, I, th- I think he's probably the one player who is of sufficient quality um, and and to a degree versatility um, to be able to get away with it. Um, I, think, I think the issue with Zaha is that 
his greatest strength is taking men on, dribbling, um, and then either cutting inside or trying to pull back across. And so it's not that he's not good enough to adapt. It's just that actually this system doesn't really play to his strengths. Um, Particularly if it's risk averse. Exactly. And and Zahar is a hugely exciting attacking talent. And to be fair to, to Palace under Allardyce, when they had, you know, Zahar and usually Townsend on either flank of, of a sort of four two three one, they they went for it. <laughs> you know, they did they weren't always they weren't always successful in their execution and you know, both players both uh, Zahar and Tanzan are capable of wasting possession quite a lot, mm. but there was intent there, and and Punchin sat just behind the striker and kind of orchestrated that. And now, when you have this risk-averse system that doesn't encourage uh, the the front, the the two players that sit behind the striker to get quite so wide, in case there's a kind of congestion with uh, with the overlapping wing backs, that that they're, they're they're expected to cut inside quite a lot as well, then it it seems to me that you're maybe taking... I mean, I I think it's probably fair to say that Zaha is Palace's best player. Maybe Benteke. Um, You're not not playing to that player's strengths, which does seem odd, particularly when the rest of the squad seems so ill-fitted for the system as well. Yeah. And let's let's think about the central midfield. We've got Jason Punch and, and Milivojevic in there as well. Um, we mentioned that a little bit in the video. What are the keys to a central midfield two here in a system where the team are playing five at the back or, or three at the back? Those two, I mean, I suppose, as we say, Townsend and Zaha will be encouraged to cut in, but naturally they probably both are wingers. So what are um, you know the, the key tenants of the role for, for Punch and Milivojevic in there? Well, I think... One of those, which is is probably why Punchin is a bad fit for it, is is positional discipline. Um, I mean, if you look at how Chelsea executed this last season, you would rarely see either of that central midfield axis getting particularly far forward. Occasionally, Kante would go up. Um, but essentially, you are sitting there partly to screen the back three, um, partly because the wing-backs are encouraged to get forward. And what you don't want to do is is create a position where there are suddenly huge amounts of space on either flank just ahead of where the wide centre-backs are. So those midfielders need to be in a position where they can either hold where they are or they can drop back almost diagonally across to cover into the full-back spaces. Um and they also need to to be able to to screen and tackle in that central area. Um, I mean, you know, they were outclassed by um, Leroy Fur and Sam Klukas, uh in the, the the recent Swansea game. Sam Klukas is a really good signing by Swansea. I'd point out, um, but Punchin is not that kind of central midfielder. You know, Punchin is is creative. He's good at getting into the box and and feeding off knockdowns um and he's not he's, he's quite exactly squirrely squirrely i've always i've always found jason punchin to be quite squirrely in that he emerges from congested situations somehow with the ball yes yeah he, but not but not always looking you know like he's done it with the elegance of hazard <laughs> do you know, no, know what i mean i, I think squirrely? i think that's fair yes and 
and you know i think i think he's he's regarded with a degree of affection by all the clubs that he's played for including southampton uh, but he's not he's not going to sit back and and either like a Nemanja Matic or to a lesser degree of Sass Fabregas kind of ping passes from deep he's not going to shuttle backwards and forwards like Angolo Kanté screening and putting in tackles and i think um Milivojevic is a good player actually <clears throat> and i think he looked really quite solid in a midfield two under Allardyce um and i note that they you know they went for MacArthur in this game again MacArthur is kind of more workmanlike and and so it looks like they're maybe thinking in in the right direction but it seems to me that in Johan Kubai um who did come on in this game you've got a ready-made deeper sitting playmaker of the kind of Matic style or or somebody who can play that role I mean Kubai you know when Kubai was in that superb Newcastle midfield axis with Czech Teote, he was he was the one who sat back and directed things a bit more while Teote did the sort of shuttling backwards and forwards. So, you know, there are there are players in that squad who are maybe better suited, Jeffrey Schlupp rather than Patrick Van Arnholt in the left wing back role. Again, is another possibility. Looking I think, for a replacement for Joel Ward, perhaps as well on the right. I think that's an absolute necessity. I mean, you could consider playing MacArthur there, um, but I think they, I think they do need to find somebody. But I mean, look, it's it's a combination for me. They've they've undergone effectively what is almost a philosophical change in the way they want to play under De Boer. They've got some players who might suit that who aren't getting time. They've got a lot of players who don't suit that. Um, you've got their best player probably Zaha in a role that's not entirely suited to what he's really good at doing yeah uh, it it just seems like a bit of a mess um, it's interesting as well when we we talk about the the central midfield axis there because i think there were a couple of examples this weekend that can really prove how important what what you're saying is um particularly you know, from a positive point of view i think there was um Nemanja Matic put in another brilliant performance with Manchester United. There were a couple of times where when Daily Blimp had gone forward and, you know, he didn't have the pace to track back, you often saw Matic pulling out left, right to the wing, covering in and that, as you said, sort of diagonally backwards, covering in for the fullback. And then a quite negative example of uh, two central midfielders in poor positions is obviously Zaka and Ramsey from the Arsenal game. I mean, it was quite incredible. I thought I watched a match of the day too, uh, and the analysis of that is quite incredible, the amount of space that was being left in behind when they went forward. And also, just from a sort of really straight, straightforward perspective, just the fact that there's two players who should be there who aren't there, even if they aren't doing anything, they're just standing there, they make such a massive difference to the flow of play and stopping in the counter-attack. The fact that they weren't there just gave Liverpool so much space to run into. So I think those two things are are, are really important. We can see examples of them. From, from all around the league happening every weekend um let, let's talk about adaptation now we, we mentioned it you know briefly before as it applies to managers um but there, there is an interesting question in this i think insofar as what makes a good manager you know it, it's is it someone who will come into a new club and imprint their own style and make it work as frank de Boer is trying to do here or is it someone who can adapt to new situations look to get the best out of the squad's uh, individual talents by being more reflexive tactically because it strikes me and as you said right at the beginning of this podcast it's probably too too early to tell 
but it does strike me personally that the Crystal Palace have made quite a bizarre move to sign De Boer because obviously you can think okay we want to play a ball retention style of play if we think in the long term that's going to benefit us and we know it's going to be a slightly you know difficult transitional period to get to that point but for me the benefits of playing that ball retention system would have to be you know so great to take the risk of going through this cloudy area now or the manager that you have acquired would have to be so great uh, to, to justify it. Does that make sense? It does. Um, it it struck me as a slightly bizarre appointment at the time. Um, not that Frank de Boer... I mean, these... Okay, the question that you've asked is a very big one, um, which, you know, is not surprising because you do like to throw those in from time to time. Um, managers have, generally speaking, got preferred systems. Um for De Boer, this is his preferred... I mean, actually, his preferred system is basically the, the sort of 3-4-3 three, three, uh, of the, the Ajax style. Um, when you look at recruiting a manager as a club, I think fundamentally what you need to ask is, what are our long-term goals? Obviously. But in the short term... Who are we recruiting? What is their preferred system? What is their their track record at getting players who aren't used to that system to buy into it and to engage on the training ground in such a way as to translate that onto the pitch in games? And who do we have in the squad who works for that for that system for for what he's trying to do? And and I think that that it it may be the case that okay so. If you look at Manchester United and the recruitment they've done, clearly there are players there now that, that Mourinho has specifically asked for. But that is part of a slow transition from the squad he inherited to presumably a kind of ideal squad that he has in his mind. But stylistically, there weren't an enormous amount of changes that were needed to, to enact that. So he's been able to kind of guide the team through this. I know they weren't amazing last season, but I think they were better than than maybe the the final league position showed. But he can affect that transition quite slowly. He can start to bring his players in so that if he does decide down the line to make systemic or tactical changes, he's done that in a way that doesn't weaken the team's current performance. With Crystal Palace what they've done is they've taken a team that's used to playing one way and then they've brought in a manager, they've not immediately splashed out on bringing in players that suit that manager's system. And they've said to the players on the training round, right, go for it, you know, start playing in this totally different way, in this totally different formation. So I think, I think while you can have, sure, you can have good and bad managers, but I think there's a an onus on the clubs. I'd love to know what the thinking behind De Boer's recruitment was. Um, you know, is it simply Presumably that... you can only assume it must be a long-term plan. I mean, I can't, I cannot see what other benefit there would be right. in well, recruiting uh, him. I mean, he's, you know, he's a big name. He's managed in Serie A, albeit quite unsuccessfully. He's won titles. And, you know, Palace have been stuck in a bit of a managerial rut of late, you know, going back to sort of slightly punchy English managers that can save them from relegation every once in a while. And and maybe they felt that it was time 
to to step up and to to embrace the the new thinking the new ideas that might come from from bringing in a continental manager who's won championships and and done well and i i i'm i guess that was their thinking i mean you never know whether there's whether there's actually a great i know i know from talking I think to it's people just who is available right well i'm sure yes and no to a degree you know there are always going to be managers who are unavailable by either the nature of their their kind of talent and reputation you know crystal palace were never going to sign pep guardiola right no of um, course but uh, i'm sorry to interject again but i think you really can tell the difference uh, in premier league clubs for example when southampton look for a new manager uh, often you know for the, certainly the last two or three they come up with a name that perhaps not everyone's heard of uh, a name that isn't on you know the sort of where will this manager go next uh, carousel and uh, they tend to do it clearly with a lot of thought involved clearly with a system in mind you know clearly with a with a long-term plan or at least a potential short-term strategy if they think the manager's going to move on again and they do it you know, reasonably well I think if not, and I'm not picking on Crystal Palace here specifically but I think there are a number of clubs in the Premier League who when they're in need of a manager and because short-termism is what it is uh, in today's football game I think they just look at that shortlist that is repeatedly mentioned by every pundit on Sky Sports and they pick the one who they think is the biggest uh, and some I mean because I, I, I just I don't want to be too negative about Crystal Palace and I'm, as you said it's too early to tell it could be that Frank de Boer does a fantastic job um, but I just cannot see why I can understand your, your point about th- taking the next step I totally appreciate that but there's two things for me which make this beyond the, the the tactical changes such such a strange appointment the first one is that it clearly wasn't the time to do it they've just had the squad shift to the philosophy of, of Sam Allardyce right literally in the last year and they did it to, to to great effect and Sam Allardyce brought in a couple of players to suit that style of play so getting a manager who is the antithesis of that to come in immediately afterwards seems like a strange thing the second thing is that Frank de Boer was in Serie A for 18 games, and he was sacked from Milan. Uh, he he was with Ajax for five years, three or two or three seasons of which were successful. But he's playing uh, and promoting a style of football, which, in my opinion, uh, it, it might be successful in Eredivisie, but in the Premier League in the last you know three to four, maybe five years, has shown itself to be on the wane. And I think if you're looking for uh, a, a European continental manager to come in and, and try something new. You'd probably want someone in in the vein of uh, of Pochettino or in the you know Biel- Bielsa school of thinking, rather than someone who maybe it's too harsh of me to say seems like with the that that I don't know the the kind of ball retention style to be f- f- flogging a dead dog. If you think Palace have struggled under Frank de Boer, I would love to see Palace being coached by Marcello Bielsa. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think. I think people would. I'm let, not saying it would. They I'm would spontaneously they... combust. Can you imagine Andros Townsend trying to? <laughs> I mean, it's... but if if the, my point was that if they wanted to take a big leap, then there there would be more sensible directions to jump in. Everything that you've said about that appointment, I I agree with, um, and I think you can very obviously contrast it with uh, with Southampton and. You know, while Palace's recent results 
have not been great. I, I think Palace would probably see themselves as being a club of the ilk of Southampton. Um, uh, fortunately, as a Southampton fan, you know how things have been going off the field has has solidified our financial state to a degree. So I would say we're probably we are in a position to re- to recruit a bit more sensibly. But you know, Swansea, who Palace played, um, <laughs> Swansea hadn't registered a shot on target before they played Palace, and they managed to beat them two 0 away. Paul Clement, I think, is another really good example of somebody who has coached in the English game. Not, I mean, I think I think his his time at Derby was actually better, and I couldn't massively understand why he was sacked at that point. But he's also got top flight experience on the continent. He's worked with a host of superb managers as uh, as a coach or as an assistant manager. And he's clearly intelligent, flex, tactically flexible and astute. And Swansea have got somebody there that realistically you could have in place for a good five, possibly more seasons if he's given the time. That that was sensible recruiting. And it's odd because we know full well that, that metrics and data have um, become integral to the scouting of players there's plenty of information on manager performances too. You know, it's not like you couldn't say to one of these consultancy firms um, that that provides recruitment advice for football clubs, uh, ask them about managers. You know, you could get a list of managers that play particular styles, who have particularly high, um, you know, ball retention or particularly good penetration or passes per defensive action, whatever metric you want to talk about, because you're just looking at team stats, you know, and it's so, it seems very odd that almost like you say, you know, that you can infer to a degree from, from certain premier league appointments that they've either kind of put their hand in the, in the bowl of English managers and pulled one car key out or it's it's the biggest name continental coach who happens to be out of a job. Yeah. Um and you've always got to look at why people are out of a job. Yeah. Um well, you mentioned in, in, in the Crystal Palace video actually that, you know, the last season or two at Ajax wasn't really that successful for De Boer and that in some ways he was tactically stagnating. Well that's I mean that's one of the key points as well as that that I think bodes ill for Palace. And I, I drew on an article that um, Priya Ramesh, who's a very good um, writer on Dutch football, did on on Frank de Boer for, uh, I think it was Benefit. Um, his greatest problem going into those last two seasons at Ajax was an unwillingness to change. Now, if you're Crystal Palace and you're in the squad and you're trying to play this 3-5-2, 3-4-2-1 and it's not working and you look across at the touchline and you see a manager who's famed for his intransigence and his unwillingness to adapt, you have to be worried because, you know, I think it, it may be that, that this formation is the hill upon which Frank de Boer chooses to die and he'd rather persist with it than than make a transition which could, you know, see Palace make short-term gains. That is another issue with management which is that some coaches become so wedded to a philosophy that they would rather persist 
with that philosophy in the face of clear evidence that it's not working rather than potentially listen to players. You know, footballers are not stupid, at least when it comes to football, and I'm sure some aren't stupid generally. Um, If they are playing week in, week out with the same group of players and they know what their strengths are, they know what worked last season, they know that the style of Allardyce worked last season, there are going to be players in that dressing room who may even be saying to De Boer, we have to change this because this is disastrous. And as a coach, how much do you undermine yourself by going, okay, Scott Dan, I will listen to you. I will I will instigate a change back to a four-man defence. Now, that's probably the right move, mm. at least in the short term, irrespective of their plans going forward. And, and De Boer has managed with a four at the back before. Um, but what does it say about the relationship between the players and the coach? What does it say about the long-term goals of the club and how responsive they should be to the need for... I mean, okay, we're not talking about survival at this point, but... Um, you know, should a club have pin its colours to a particular mask going forwards and accept that actually that might doom them? No, clearly yeah. that's not going to happen. So at some point, either De Boer has to change or they reappoint from Sam Allardyce. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's he's uh, available. He's he's <laughs> always available, isn't he? Uh, but yeah, perhaps, perhaps you're right. Perhaps through the eye, a spear made of... Uh, made of the back three. Who knows? We'll find out anyway. Uh, Alex, thanks very much for your time today, and I'll speak to you again soon. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks, Jay.